The rest of us, we're going to be in 2 Timothy chapter 4 this morning, and so if you have a Bible, I would love to have you join me in opening your Bible to 2 Timothy chapter 4. And we're going to be looking at a passage of Scripture that gives a pastoral mandate, gives a mandate to all who are pastors to preach God's Word. Now, how many of you here are pastors? Now, I don't even need to ask. I know some of you actually are, but by and large, most of you are not pastors, so you might be tempted to think, well, that's not relevant to me. Well, I think it is so relevant that I've moved the Sunday night series, Second Timothy, to Sunday morning because I wanted it to have as broad of a hearing at Omaha Bible Church as possible. And so last Sunday morning we looked at this, uh, and we're going to look at it again this morning, and then we'll finish the book actually tonight. But it is critical that we as Christians, not just pastors, I believe, uh, come to grips with what God's mandate is. What does God expect of pastors? Now, He expects many different things, but, but what does He expect as far as it's clear, articulate? Well, in this case, we know it's a priority because it's the very last chapter of the last pastoral letter the Apostle Paul would ever write, and so it carries the, the, the utmost seriousness and, and it carries great weight. It applies to all of us because all of us who name the name of Christ, and I would even say those who don't name the name of Christ, are impacted, whether directly or indirectly, by what pastors do and by what pastors don't do. And so it is pressing for us as a church, not only uh, those of you who are called to be pastors, but also for those of you who never will be in that calling, and yet so that you might know how to pray, so that you might know, how about this, know what to expect, or let's ratchet that up a little bit, so that you might know what to demand from pastors. We really need to know what God calls pastors to be and do, and it's so clearly articulated for us here in this chapter. I suppose by way of further introduction, I I haven't done this for some time now, but I used to find it, I guess amusing is a safe word to use. I used to find it rather amusing when I used to subscribe to a particular magazine and I'd look in the back all the time and look at the the pastoral job postings. I particularly enjoyed that when I was having a hard time here at Omaha Bible Church. I'm just kidding. (laughs) As a matter of fact, I I would never look for a church that way. I would never recommend it uh, to be done either. Uh, I just don't think that's the way to go about doing it. But anyway... I would find it amusing, and I would always find myself looking in the back eventually, uh, waste, you know, spending some time or doing whatever, bored, late night, Sunday night, or whatever, just looking at that. And, and it was always amusing because uh, sometimes the ones that really stood out to me were those to the one extreme. They were basically looking for uh, Jesus Christ to be their pastor. <laughs> basically, they would say all these things they wanted, and you could just kind of you know, read between the lines, oh, he needs to be omniscient, <laughs> uh, he needs to be omnipresent, uh, he needs to be truth incarnate, and they were never going to find that person, and it was just kind of amusing. And then the other one that I found amusing, and I saw way too many of, were those statements where they were looking for a pastor, spending, I would imagine, hundreds if not thousands of dollars. So they were dead serious about soliciting uh, pastors. What they didn't say, by and large, most of them didn't say anything that directly is related to what I'm going to say this morning. Most of them didn't say anything that was directly related to Second Timothy chapter 4. Most of them didn't say, in other words, anything about the requirement for preaching. 
oh, sure, dynamic communicator, uh, a competent preacher, but to be more specific, it didn't say anything about expository preaching, preaching the text of Scripture without compromise. And, and they certainly didn't say anything about a preacher who would be faithful and bold about reproving, rebuking, and exhorting, which is what God calls pastors to do. And so, and, I'm, and there were some that actually did, but most of them didn't. So with that in mind, I suppose that's at least a little bit of a pulse. This is a broadly circulated magazine. People know that pastors subscribe to it, so many churches of all different sorts of stripe uh, are looking to get a pastor because they know pastors get this magazine. It's probably a pretty good pulse check for us on what the church is looking for. And it's motivating for us today because what we find by and large, based upon that, that the church isn't looking for the right thing. They're not looking for what God calls pastors to do and to be. And so we want to rekindle that uh, in our own passion, if you will, as a church, to make sure we know what a pastor is supposed to be, what he's supposed to do, what one of his big priorities must be. I'm not saying there aren't other priorities. There are. And so this morning we'll look at 2 Timothy chapter 4, verses 1 to 8. And by way of an outline this morning, we will look at four divinely mandated reasons. Four divinely mandated reasons why every pastor, every faithful pastor must preach the Bible. Four divine mandates, four divinely mandated reasons why every faithful pastor must commit himself to preaching the Bible, preaching the Word of God. And we will see them rather clearly. We began looking at them last time. We actually looked at the first two. Let me review them and just a passing fashion, and then we'll look at the latter two this morning. Number one, every faithful pastor must commit himself to preaching the Word of God. Number one, because it is the key to spiritual life and growth. It is the key to spiritual life and growth. That is to say, the Bible is the key to spiritual life and growth. We can look at other passages that talk about this, but right here in the same context, it it, it sets the stage for this. Look with me, if you would, not at chapter 4, but back in chapter 3, leading into chapter 4, where he says all Scripture is inspired by God, God-breathed and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, so that the man of God, the pastor, and then he's going to pass it on to others, so it's by implication for all of us, may be adequate equipped for every good work. We looked at it in detail to some degree we won't this morning. Every good work? Therefore, we have to conclude, if we really believe that is true, that this is the most powerful Weapon in the pastor's arsenal. Now, perhaps that's a little bit too negative. This is is his most used, his most effective instrument that he has in his bag where he goes to cure spiritual souls. This is it. We've got to take this seriously. If it really is the Word of God, and it truly is profitable for those things, so that the man of God may be adequate, equipped for every good work, no doubt he's going to help others to be equipped as well with this Word, it is only logical that he would then lead into a statement about what that pastor had better do with that book, which is what he does in chapter 4. And he gets to that central command in chapter 4, verse 2, and he says, Preach the book! Preach the Word! He uses synonyms, Scripture, the Word, truth, sound doctrine. If we really believe the Bible is true, we will preach the Bible. 
turning it around a little bit for the sake of making the point, if we don't preach the Bible, as we talked about last time, it's showing what we really believe about the Bible. If we don't preach the Bible, we don't really believe, oh, maybe it's true, but maybe lowercase t, and it certainly doesn't equip for every good work. I believe the Bible is the Word of God. Many of you do as well. That's why I want to preach the Bible and nothing but the Bible. I don't want to preach my opinions. I don't want to preach the latest survey. I don't want to preach the latest trendy book. I want to preach the Bible because none of those things have have been uh, infused, if you will. None of those things have been related to the promise to equip people for absolutely every good work. I think I would be committing a pastoral crime against you if I didn't preach the Bible week in and week out certainly wouldn't be the loving thing to do. Well, let's move on. That's first, again, by way of review. Number two, every faithful pastor, second reason, must commit himself to preaching the Word of God because God requires it. And I like to chuckle and say that's always my favorite reason. Right there, God demands it. Right there in verse 2, you'll see, preach the Word, herald the Word. But it's even more impactful when you go back to verse 1 and read the setting where it says, if you look with me, you'll see, I... The formal representative of Jesus Christ, by the way, based upon chapter 1, verse 1, I, an apostle, solemnly charge you, Timothy, the pastor, in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, that includes you, Timothy, and by his appearing and by his kingdom. And then he says, preach the word, the the central command of the whole chapter, Timothy. God commands you to do it. And oh, by the way, as I'm exhorting you on behalf of Christ, as an apostle of Christ, I'm exhorting you to do this, and God is my witness. And you're going to answer to to Him. You're going to answer to Jesus Christ one day for whether or not you preach the book or not. And I like to say, if a pastor can't figure that one out, I wouldn't trust him with anything. I mean, it is just... In neon lights, last book Paul writes, pastoral epistle, the last chapter, he's ready to die. And what does he say to pastors? There's the command, preach the Word, preach the truth, preach sound doctrine, preach the Scriptures. All of those are the synonyms used. You know, I I may not know, I, I may be dumb, but I ain't stupid. I mean, there are a lot of things that I just can't figure out in life. But I've got that one figured out. And if I can't have that one figured out, then, then you need to require that I do something else. And isn't it interesting, as we saw last time, it's to preach the Word. And again, I've already alluded to this. In verse 3, that's referred to as sound doctrine. In verse 4, it's referred to as truth. Back in 3.16, it's referred to as Scripture. He's talking about the same thing. And we also noted that, that he's very clear about how this is to be done. Preach. Preach the Word. It carries the, the, the idea of authority. You're representing someone else. You're not suggesting that people do this. You're telling them to do this. Not because you're on an authority trip. By the way, I am on an authority trip if I'm preaching something other than the Word. Because who, who gave me the right to do that? But we get an exact opposite. We think because the pastor's bold and he's telling us this is what God says and what God means by what he says, and he's telling us we must do it, man, he's on some kind of an authority trip. We'd much prefer someone to just tell us something else. We've got it exactly opposite. If it really is God's Word, and the pastor is preaching it, that's not his authority trip. You can accuse God of having one if you want. Don't stand next to me. 
It's clear, bold preaching. And then he tells him, this is to be carried out. Look at verse 2, being ready in season and out of season. This, this military posture that you own it. This is what you want to do. This isn't something that they, the leaders of the church are requiring you to do. This isn't a mold you're going to try to fit yourself into. At your very core, you are ready to do this. And you do it in season and out of season. So when it's popular, when it's not popular. And then he says, reprove, rebuke. That is telling people that, that certain actions or, or beliefs are wrong. You're telling them to stop doing those things or to stop believing those things. This is bold. This is authority from God. As Larson, in his helpful book called The Anatomy of Preaching, says, truth is not a polite tap on the shoulder. It's a howling reproach. And I like what he said. What Moses brought down from Mount Sinai were not the ten suggestions. They were the ten commandments. He was giving authoritative revelation from God. Then he says exhort, which is very positive. Exhort with the truth. And then he says, with great patience and instruction. And more than anything, I think that is a statement that that speaks to Timothy. It's not going to be easy. You're not going to be able to say, all right, let me tell you something that's biblical. You're not currently believing it. Now it's time to believe it. And I urge you to believe it. Case closed. Let's talk about something else. We'll never have to revisit that issue again. I don't know about you, but that's not how it is in my life. (laughs) Certainly not that way in the church either. Timothy, you're in it for the long haul. Pastor, you're in it for the long haul. You're going to be doing this, but you're going to have to do it with great patience. As God is patient with you, you'd better be patient with fellow sheep. And great patience and instruction, you're just going to have to keep teaching. So it's quite helpful, this command from God. Now let's move on to new ground. Number three, a third compelling reason that that must call me, call other pastors, call you as a congregation to require this, to demand this, to pray toward this end. For us as a church, even to further, even though we've already done this, to further commit ourselves to having pastors trained. We move on. Number three, third reason, because others in the church will oppose it. Because others in the church will oppose it. And we're going to see this in verses 3, 4, and 5. I believe what, by way of mindset, have this in mind. What he's about ready to call Timothy to do is in light of his call to preach the Word. And he's calling him to make sure that he, he remembers that he's going to answer to God. And he has to make sure that he's committed, he's ready in his heart of hearts to preaching the Word of God in season and out of season. And in light of that, he's going to tell him, Timothy, you better have that kind of heartfelt resolve because I'm giving you another reason here. And the reason is there's going to come a time when they're not going to want it. Have resolve in your mind. Verse 3, look with me. For the time will come. Interesting for those of you who are Greek students. Kairos time could be translated season, epic, not chronos time, not calendar time. This is going to happen on a certain date to never happen again. He's saying, Timothy, in your life, in your ministry, you will see a season, if not seasons, in this case, you will see a season when people won't put up with your Bible preaching. I like it that he uses that word because it it allows us even further application It's a seasonal thing. There are times when the professing people of God won't tolerate the Word of God. If this just would have been a one-time calendar event, then we would assume maybe this would never happen again. No, we need to assume that this will happen again. So let's keep that in mind. For the time will come when they, 
Oh, those wicked, unbelieving atheists. No. The context would indicate a time will come when they... He's telling Timothy how to lead the professing church. He's telling Timothy how to lead in church ministry. So get it out of your mind. Oh yeah, those bad unbelievers, there's going to come a time when they just won't tolerate the truth anymore. Let's fight them. That would be way too easy. Because we wouldn't be looking in the mirror. Timothy, a time will come when they, the people you're supposed to preach to, people in your church, Timothy, a time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine. Sound doctrine, again, being a synonym for the Word or for Scripture or for truth. Every pastor needs to know, like Timothy needed to know, there is that season when the people aren't going to put up with it. They're not going to put up with the unvarnished, undiluted, bold proclamation of divine truth. It's what he says. It's what he's getting at. I would suggest, and I don't think I'm forcing issues, that that we are living in such a season, even in our own country. I mentioned reading those uh, position postings. That would be a pretty good indicator. Uh, A recent study, a sociological study that was done, surveyed Christians, surveyed evangelicals, and indicated and concluded the most desired pastoral quality, the most desired pastoral quality, Number one is an open and affirming style. The number one thing people were looking for, an open and affirming style. Did you notice what it said in this text? Reproves, rebukes, exhorts. (laughs) And it's with the authority that this is God's Word. (laughs) Open and affirming. I I like to be open and affirming. I'm openly affirming that that's true. (laughs) And if you don't think it is, we still love you, but you need to repent. The very thing Paul is telling Timothy that the people are going to be looking for is the very thing you're not going to be giving them. The very thing I know that I'm going to be giving week in and week out, and that's not always the case with everybody, but certainly seasonally speaking is the very thing people aren't looking for. That's why it's very important that you don't want to try to build your ministry based upon how many people are responding positively. It's not about that. It's great when people do respond positively. But it's not about that. It's you alone before God. 1 Timothy 4.1 He is watching you. He is going to judge you. Timothy and all Timothys after him, you'd better commit yourself in season and out of season to preaching the Word. Because a time will come when they won't put up with it. He uses sound doctrine. It's the word that could be translated healthy. It's a medical term that he uses. Isn't that ironic? The very thing, the very thing that is going to give them spiritual life, the very thing that's going to give them spiritual vitality, even though sometimes the medicine doesn't go down easily, The very thing they need, sound doctrine, healthy teaching, is the very thing that they will refuse. It's the very thing that they will refuse, the very thing that gives them life. This is tragic. 
Not too long ago, Time Magazine came out with a list of the top 25 most influential evangelicals. How many expository preachers were in the list of 25? Zero. I'm not saying there weren't faithful individuals on the list. There was everything on the list. There were non-evangelicals on the list. Top 25 most influential people in our camp. And they went outside of our camp a little bit. And I think they were right. I don't think this is Time Magazine's weird spin on things. I think they were right. There's not a single person on the list radically committed to preaching the Word of God. So again, the pulse of the church ain't so good. Well, it's good to know that. Lest we think, oh, then we'd better adjust. We can adjust a lot of things, but we better not adjust this. And it's not going to help people even if we say it's in the name of love. And look, more gory details. Sorry, it doesn't get really more encouraging uh, until later. Verse 3 goes on to say, but... So they, they, they'll reject what's healthy, but wanting to have their ears tickled. Remember earlier? Reprove, rebuke, exhort. That boxes the ears, right? That's what you're supposed to do, but the people, the professing people of God, because they want to have their ears tickled, they want to be stroked. They want to be stroked with nice words. They want to have their ears caressed by, by nice flowery language and nice, 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 I almost said nice things. Yeah, that's what they want, all right. Look what it says. They will accumulate, literally heap up. It's a word for overindulgence. It's a word for gluttony. They will heap up for themselves teachers in accordance to their own desires, epithumia, their own lusts. So get it out of your mind that the compromising church doesn't want spirituality. Get it out of your mind that they don't want to be taught anything. In fact, the opposite is true. He's saying, Timothy, the time's going to come when they, the professing church, they will, they will heap up, they will pile up like, like, like gluttons, teachers who will talk to them. They love teachers. They love the publishing industry. They love the pulpits because they're just going to heap up teachers who will caress their ears and fulfill their epithumia, fulfill their lusts. Wow. They want somebody who will stroke them. You know, we could flesh this out. They, 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 want, they want... This is driving me crazy. They, they want people who will come to them and say, I just want you all to know that you're so good. God thinks you're good. God thinks you're significant. In fact, He thinks you're so good that He sent His Son Jesus to come and die for you. Well, that's the exact opposite of what the Bible says, as a matter of fact. You are such a sinner and you've offended God so radically that He's going to send your soul to hell justly and the angels and those who've been redeemed will worship Him for doing it. That's the truth. But God is love and God is gracious and, and that's why He loved you when you were unlovely. And He sent His Son to die in your place. That would be the right way. But they don't want it. people to tell them that. You say that and people say, I can't invite my friends anymore. They will accumulate people who will tell them they're good. 
It will accumulate people who will affirm the salvation of those who are clearly not saved. They want people who will tell them, as I heard someone said just recently, that Jesus believes in them. They want teachers who will come and they won't use, you know, those puritanical, scarlet letter-ish, bad words like sin, depravity. They want teachers who will tell them, you know, God's main goal here. His greatest desire is for you to be happy. They want people who will tell them things like, you know, God doesn't want any bad things to happen in your life. And if He could help you, He would. They want people who will tell other people, your problems, none of them are your fault. I don't know about you, but some of those things sound kind of good. Tell me I'm a good person. Oh, sure, you know, you don't do everything perfect, Pat. Because nobody does. But you know what? You're trying and God is going to accept you. And (sighs) Self-esteem is good. Feeling good. I I want that. I think we all want that. Someone mentioned to me earlier, yeah, I don't want any ear-tickling preaching. I like the sermon today. And I joked and said, I actually do. (laughs) I do. Apart from the grace of God, I want you to tell me you like the way I look. I want you to tell me that you think God likes the way I look. I want you to tell me that I'm good. Right? That's just what we want. And that's why we need to grow in godliness and we even want to have pastors who will tell us the truth so that we will know what the true solution is. You know what? God doesn't think you're good. So that we'll know what the diagnosis is because it's the right diagnosis so that by the grace of God we'll seek the cure. All of this in 2 Timothy chapter 4 reminds me of Jeremiah in the Old Testament. Jeremiah 5.31, it says, The prophets prophesy falsely. They're supposed to be the truth tellers. They're lying. And the priests rule on their own authority. They're supposed to rule on the authority of God. And what is the response? People say, Get them out of here! We want a faithful preacher! No, it says, And my people, the people of God, love it so. That's what they want. It's tragic. Well, as we look at 2 Timothy 4, verse 4, moving on, we see that this is disastrous. This is not ending good for them and will turn away their ears from the truth or sound doctrine or the Scripture and will turn aside to myths. And if my memory serves me correctly, and I believe it does, the way that that actually comes out is they will turn their ears away from the truth, which is the source of health. But it's interesting the way he puts it, it becomes passive. It's, and when they turn their, their ears away from the truth, the next part is passive. You could read it this way. And will be turned aside to myths. I don't know how your translation puts it, but mine doesn't put it that way. That'd be a literal rending, rendering. As they turn away from the truth, they will be turned aside to myths. Think of it this way. When you walk away from the truth, you might think you're gaining freedom. You're becoming a slave. Because now you're a slave to each and every unsound doctrine that's out there because you've walked away from the truth. So as you turn your ears away from the truth, you will be turned aside to myths. You did it in the name of freedom and now you've got a big hook in your mouth and you are Mr. or Mrs. Gullible from believing anything. That is what's so tragic about this. 
I want to pose this question to you to get you thinking about this perhaps in a different way than you've typically thought of it. Let me ask you this question. When you are a part of a church that that goes, for lack of a better way to put it, down the toilet, when you are a part of a ministry that, that moves away from straightforward preaching from God's Word, standing for the truth, or when you observe it happen, how do you answer this question? Whose fault is it? Whose fault is it anyway that this happened? I realize it's a, multi, uh, it's, a, it's a complex question, all kinds of different facets to the answer. But typically, I end up pointing the finger at the pastor because he's accountable before God. He should have been faithfully preaching the Word of God. He wasn't faithfully preaching the Word of God. I sometimes even flesh it out a little bit more and say, I not only blame the current pastor, I blame the former pastor because if the former pastor would have been doing his job, the people would have been discerning and they wouldn't tolerate the current guy. But that's for a whole other conversation. We point the finger at the pastor, and many times justly so. But in this text, the finger, should I say fingers, are pointed at the congregants. The fingers are pointed at the congregation. So I think it's valid to say it's both. It's not either or. Sometimes it's one, sometimes it's the other. Perhaps it's a mixture because did you see a time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine? A time will come when they're going to give Pastor Timothy the big fat pink slip and say, here's a box, fill it up. FedEx will bring it to your house. Right? So let's just be careful about always pointing the finger at that bad pastor because this particular text because it's a faithful pastor, is pointing the finger at the congregation. So it really is both. It just depends on what kind of situation we're in. I have to tell you this too, just a little bit of perhaps pastoral humor as twisted as it is. Whenever I hear the phrase pastoral search committee, I think of this passage. Pastoral search committee. Now, please don't misunderstand. I think there's a place for such a thing if it's done in a biblical way according to biblical parameters. But just the whole idea is rather interesting, especially since it's never used in the Bible, not even the idea. Pastoral search committee. Hmm. And what are we looking for? Oh, leading the list. Preaches preaches the word uncompromisingly, and he's committed like nothing uh, else to reproving, rebuking, and exhorting. Never seen that before. Now, we want him to do all kinds of things. It would help if he was omniscient. But we're going to have him do all kinds of things. And typically, these aren't the things on there. So just rethink the pastoral search committee idea and what they're trying to accomplish. Now, again, a church doesn't have a pastor. They need a pastor. It's good to have a plan to come up with a pastor. But again, what are the parameters? And that would be an interesting conversation as well. Let's, with all this in mind, let's keep going. With all this in mind, he says to a pastor, verse 5, But you, even when people reject you in your teaching, not because he's a jerk, not because he's not faithful, but because he actually is being faithful in this context, be sober in all things. And what's driving that? No doubt, no doubt, verse 1, Timothy, before God is my witness, Jesus Christ, who will judge you, you preach the word, and now he's to the point where he's saying, you be sober in all things. 
You'd better be sober. You'd better be serious. You better be clear thinking about this. Lest somehow you succumb to the pressure of the people and start giving them what they want. Because don't forget, you're going to answer to Christ. Timothy, you better be thinking. You better be sober minded here. That's what's driving that. It's necessary, lest somehow the pastor be tempted to prostitute his calling and his office for the sake of the masses or for the sake of popularity. Lest he give the people what they want. Elaborating on the sobrieties in verse 5, he says, and I think sobriety is driving this, endure hardship. Paul gave him an example of his own life in verse 3 of chapter 2, verse 9 of chapter 2. We could do open mic, I guess, and ask pastors to come forward and talk about how Hardship is reality. We won't do that. But in context, it's in, in preaching the word, it's going to be opposed. You endure hardship. That kind of hardship. Verse 5, do the work of an evangelist. Do the work of an evangelist. I don't think Timothy was an evangelist. Like Philip was an evangelist. You don't get that idea. He's called to do the work of an evangelist. And this would be an interesting study for us to even think about. In one sense, we're all called to evangelize. In that sense, we're all called to do the work of an evangelist. But I find it interesting, the placement here. The placement here where it's going to be tough, Timothy. You're pastoring this church. You're to be preaching the the undiluted truth about God and about His great Son, Jesus Christ, and about uh, salvation and about sanctification. And it's going to be hard, and they're going to oppose you, and they're going to want to replace you with somebody who will tell them what they want to hear. And he says, do the work of an evangelist. Perhaps because he needs to be doing some evangelizing in his own congregation. And then broaden it a little bit. Think about how good these words are for us even as we do evangelize. Timothy, pastors doing the work of an evangelist. But for the rest of us even, if we can go there just for a moment, as we do the work of an evangelist, we should do it with a sober mind. We should do it with the mindset that we need to tell people what they need to hear, what is healthy, as opposed to what they want to hear, have their ears tickled. And let me give you a clue. It doesn't start with God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. That may not even be true. You can certainly start by the love of God if you would like to, but you better do some explaining. You've got some explaining to do. You better explain that it's against the backdrop of sin and it's against the backdrop of God's righteous justice. And you've got to explain why we would need a Savior and, and why we would need to trust in Christ and Christ alone. And those kind of things, I don't know. People aren't knocking on my door looking for me to tell them about that. As you do the work of an evangelist, you'd better be sober-minded and you better give them the truth about the evangel, Jesus Christ, because you're telling His story. We have to remember this, knowing that 1 Peter 2.8 says that Christ is a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. I really question, uh, question uh, evangelism when we're always getting positive results you're always getting positive results and you're never offending anyone, and I don't mean by our offensiveness, if you're always getting positive results and you're never offending anyone, you're not telling them about the true evangel as you're evangelizing. Because the Bible clearly refers to Christ as the rock of offense. Clearly refers to Christ as often rejected, often a stumbling block. 1 Corinthians 1, 1 Corinthians 2. Let's move on. In verse 5, toward the end there, sober-mindedly fulfill your ministry. That's a great summary statement, isn't it? Fulfill your ministry. 
I want to tease that out a little bit with you. Fulfill your ministry. Notice it comes in, in context. He's been telling them all of these things, starting with before God and seriously and sober-minded before Him. You preach the Word. And then He tells them how to do it. He tells them about the opposition. And then He comes back to this statement here where He says, fulfill your ministry. How can I know if I fulfilled my ministry or not? I read the verses before and I see if I've done those things. Isn't every pastor on planet earth wondering whether or not they're doing the right thing in the name of God? I think every pastor on planet earth is somehow wondering or not. I think every Christian in one way or another is wondering, am I really doing what I'm supposed to be doing and how can I know? Well, certainly at least for the pastor and hopefully for the demanding congregation, how can we know as a church? If we're truly fulfilling the God-given ministry before us, well, there's different ways to look at it, but here's one clear way that couldn't be clearer. It's tied to the undiluted Loving, bold, clear, uncompromising, we could go on and on, preaching of the Word of God. So come heaven or high water, I like to put it, I want to preach the Word of God so that I might fulfill my ministry. And if I don't preach the Word of God in season and out of season, you need to go take me to coffee. And make sure you take me someplace other than a place I might like. Because it shouldn't be congratulatory. You need to take me behind the woodshed. Even if it means building a woodshed. And say, let me tell you something, pal. Put your finger in my chest. You're not fulfilling your ministry because you're not preaching the word in season and out of season. That would be the loving thing to do. Remember, Timothy, based upon what we've seen, he doesn't you know, exactly strike you as the guy with the biggest backbone in the world. You know, you might even think, let's just, let's just turn this into psychobabble for the sake of illustration. You know, you think maybe if Paul would have had some sensitivity training, he wouldn't have done this. Maybe if he would have he would know what we know today. You know, maybe he would have taken a different approach and he wouldn't command him to do things. And, and he certainly, you know, if he understood how people really are, he wouldn't tell them to, repro- tell them to reprove and rebuke and exhort. We see how ridiculous that is. It's as clear as could be. It's as clear as could be because the, the calling for every pastor is the same. Take God's book, His revelation of Himself that exalts His Son, and herald it, right? This is great. This isn't a downer. I know it's a downer in the context because it's all about Paul dying. People are compromising. And Timothy, you know what? Come heaven or high water, you better preach it even if they don't like you. That's a downer, I realize. But stepping away for a moment, this isn't a downer at all. I love this because we don't have to have an identity crisis. I love this. It saves me lots of money in books and I don't need to find out what the latest evangelical trend is so we can get all ramped up and order the banners. You know? And maybe you need to send me to a seminar so I can be trained by the person who wrote the book and, and boy, that's over now so we need to find out what the latest thing is. We need to find out what the latest you know, wave is that God is bringing so we too can surf it. Borrowed from a movement. <laughs> that would be nuts. We don't have to have an identity crisis. We can say, this is what pastors are supposed to do. We as a church will demand that pastors do this. It's good. This is great. This is wonderful. 
I praise God for this passage. Let's move on. And you know, by the way, I don't have it in this Bible. I have the wrong Bible today. It's just driving me crazy. I almost couldn't do scripture reading. But the Bible I typically preach from, in the front of the front of the Bible, I have written down, and it says, "This is God's message for you today. Preach the word." It starts with Pat. This is God's message for today. Preach the word. And I can't tell you how many times. It's not always, but when it's going to be hard, it's going to be complicated. And I'm feeling scared that I sit on the front seat, open it up and look at it and think, that's what I need to do. That's exactly what I need to do. So I don't need to have an identity crisis. I don't need to be afraid. I just need to preach the word because I know that honors the king. Let's move on to number four. I can't wait for number four to get us moving here. Every faithful pastor, a fourth reason, must commit himself to preach the word of God. Number four, because of the continuance of, excuse me, because the continuance of the truth depends upon it. Because the continuance of the truth depends upon it. Now, lest any of you hyper-Calvinists get carried away and think somehow I don't believe in the sovereignty of God, I believe in the sovereignty of God. I believe in the sovereignty of God to the degree that if human beings don't speak the truth, God will use the rocks to cry out the truth. That's what He tells us in His Word. But from a human perspective, Paul is passing on the baton of ministry to Timothy, telling Timothy, Timothy, I'm going to die. I am passing off the scene. And Timothy, you must not only take the baton, you must take the baton and you must carry it faithfully to the end of your race. Timothy would have been feeling the pressure. He would have been feeling the pressure because all along he's been allowed, he's been allowed if you will, as faithful as he might have been, he's been al- allowed to depend to a certain degree upon his mentor, Paul. He's not going to be allowed to do that anymore. He can't sort of think, well, I'll try my very best, but you know what? If it doesn't get done, I know it'll get taken care of. I know when my, my father died when I was uh, a boy, I think I was technically a man because I was, you know, registered for the draft or something like that, but I was a boy. My dad died. Something changed. My dad passed off the scene, and now all of a sudden I was doing things that I'd never done before. I was doing things that I'd never even wanted to do before. I never felt the pressure to do those things before because I didn't need to because my dad was there ultimately to oversee the thing and to bail me out, if you will. And then my dad died and everything changed. Well, it's not exactly perfect, but Paul is going off the scene. He was so vital. He was so critical. And Timothy now is meant to feel that burden, to feel ownership, to feel that now it's time to grow up from being a spiritual boy to being a man and owning it for yourself. And I would urge you pastors who listen, I would urge uh, you who listen even in, in your spiritual responsibilities as a congregation, we do need to realize that we can't continue to depend upon those who went before us who are not here anymore. We need to grow up and act like spiritual men and own it for ourselves and take that baton. I love reading Jonathan Edwards. I love reading John Owen. I love reading these other authors who's, who've gone before us. We need to be careful we don't live in their world. Somehow it's all dependent upon them because they sure did, sure did it faithfully. It can become delusional. You better take the baton yourself and be faithful yourself. How about this? On your watch? How about for our children? How about for our children's children? How about for our peers? How about ultimately for the glory of Jesus Christ in our own lives? 
This is what's happening here. The final reason we're going to look at is because the continuance of the truth, it's the baton pass. It is depending upon that next generation so Timothy will take it so that it might even be passed on further. Let's go ahead and read it in verse 6 if you would. For I, the Apostle Paul, the big gun, am already being poured out as a drink offering. His beautiful Old Testament picturesque way of saying, I am ready to die. As an act of worship to God, just as this, this Old Testament rite would have been. I'm already being poured out as a drink offering. And the time of my departure has come. It's, it's imminent. It's right here. It's now. It's sure. It's going to happen. You, you, can, you can sense the sense of urgency. Timothy, you've got to do the right thing because I'm leaving. You can sense the, the, the weightiness of it all. Timothy, you'd better do the right thing because it is time for me to die. Great the way he puts it. And then he goes on to say in verse 7, by way of encouragement, by his own personal testimony, I have fought the good fight. And again, I don't think Paul is just giving himself accolades, telling him all about his life. It's in the context of trying to inspire Timothy. Timothy, I called you to fulfill your ministry just earlier. Well, I'm going to show you how I, by the grace of God, fulfilled mine. I have fought the good fight. It's as if he's saying, Timothy, look at my life. It's worth it to do it to the very end in this military posture. Verse 7 goes on, I have finished the course. Now moving from military to to athletic, I I, I finished the course that was even sometimes very grueling. Again, Timothy, I told you in verse 5, for you to fulfill your ministry, Timothy, I'm not asking you to do something I didn't do. And again, sometimes people get nervous. I don't know why commentators get nervous that Paul's talking about himself in such a way. We could go after passage after passage where Paul is very clear that he is chief among sinners who could never do anything right in and of himself. But by the grace of God, he's empowered for real spiritual ministry. This isn't a passive approach to ministry. I have finished the course. Yes, he would know it's by the grace of God, but nevertheless, he needs to feel the pressure. And Timothy needs to feel the pressure. Then he says, I have kept the faith. No doubt personally, as well as protecting it, defending it. He, he's fulfilled his ministry. And it's worth it. He's telling Timothy over and over again by these different statements, Timothy, it's worth it. Look at my life. I know you admire me. Let me inspire faithfulness. Verse 8 goes on. In the future, ah, it is worth it. In the future, there is laid up for me a crown of righteousness. This is ultimate righteousness. We might even say he's talking about glorification here, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day. I've been justified before God as a sinner even though I'm not righteous myself. So I've experienced righteousness in that sense, declarative righteousness. I've experienced even what I will call experiential righteousness, sanctification, spiritual growth. I've received that as a result of what Christ has done as well. God has graciously given me both of those things. And you know what? I'm waiting for for the ultimate. The ultimate is going to be because of what Christ has done, I have guaranteed glorification. And I, I, I'm locked in and I'm, I'm waiting for that day, Timothy. And it's worth it. It's worth it to run to the end. It's worth it to stand firm. It's worth it to preach the Word even if they don't want to hear the Word. It's all worth it. Do it, Timothy. Look at my life. I'm doing it by the grace of God. And then, verse 8, it brings us all into the mix. This isn't just for apostles. This isn't just for pastors. This is for us. Verse 8 goes on to say, And not only to me, but also to all who have loved His appearing. 
This isn't for super saints. This isn't for apostles only. This does open up the model for all of us. We want to be faithful to do in ministry what we're supposed to do, what is biblical. And we do, by the grace of God, want to pursue perseverance. Knowing that in the end, we're going to see Jesus Christ and we're going to be made like Him. We're going to be glorified. And it's all worth it. And you know, this is a promise from God to all who have loved His appearing. It's interesting, He even puts it in the past tense. I thought we were waiting for His appearing. We are waiting for His appearing. And yet it's what moves us. It's what causes us to, 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 to do the right thing now. It's what causes us to run the race faithfully. It causes us to stand firm faithfully because we're waiting for Christ, Christ to, to affirm what we've done and to give us our final reward, if you will. And now, don't miss this. Connect these dots. Chapter 4, verse 1, I solemnly charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead... Okay, remember Jesus Christ. I'm commissioning you in front of Him. You'll give an answer to Him. Dot, dot, dot. In context, don't miss the connection. Verse 8. All those who have loved His appearing. I think we, we would be remiss to not miss the connection. And then, fill in the in-between stuff. Preach the Word. Why do I preach the Word? Because I'm commissioned before Christ to preach His Word. And if I really am afraid of Him in all the right senses, I will preach the Word. But see, it's more to that. He, he goes and he, he ties the whole thing back together in verse 8. That this is for those who love His appearing. Those who are waiting for Him to come. Because you are going to answer to Him. In a sense, He ends where He starts. Verse 8 is picking up again what He started in verse 1. And now let's flesh it out a little bit. I say I love Jesus Christ. I say I fear Him in all the right senses. I say I'm waiting to meet Him and I'm looking forward to His appearing. And I don't preach the Bible. There's a word for that. There's a word for me. It's called liar. Right? The Bible's very logical. Or perhaps you could just say, I'm just ignorant and, and I'm uninformed. That could be the case. But a pastor shouldn't be uninformed of a pastoral epistle in the Bible, should he? What motivates me, what must motivate me like never before is, I'm commissioned before Christ as a pastor to preach His Word in season and out of season, knowing I will give an account to Him and I will meet Him one day. And if I've been doing it as I'm supposed to, as, I, as I'm supposed to do, I can honestly say, as Paul says in chapter 4, verse 8, I love His appearing. In other words, I want to meet Him. I can't wait till He comes back. The only way anyone could say that is if they had been doing what He had asked them to do in the interim while he was gone. If I'm not faithfully preaching the Word of God, the honest truth is, I don't love his appearing. Because I need to do some serious house cleaning before he gets here. See the connection? It's a great connection for us to see. Just read it, and read it in context, and you see what's happening. I want to do the right thing so that I can therefore say, I love his appearing. I want him to come back. Even though I know my life's not what it needs to be. 
by the grace of God, I'm fighting the good fight. I'm, I'm attempting to finish the course. The opposite is true as well, looking at it from the other vantage point. If I'm not doing God's business God's way, I am showing you by my actions that I don't long for His appearing. Verse 8. And verse 1, I'm not really afraid of Him as I should be. This is ethical eschatology at its finest. Eschatology is the study of future things. Jesus Christ is coming again. Pastors, if they have any kind of ethics at all, will preach the word in light of His return. Pastors, preach the word. Congregants, pray for pastors to preach the word. Demand that pastors preach the word. Require it. As one pastor friend of mine used to say, go find the pastor's office and where it says pastor's office and tear the sign down. At worst, put up another sign that says study. At best, leave the sign down. And my pastor friend's point was, we're looking for all the wrong things in pastors. Let's answer this question to close. How did Timothy do? I don't know about you, but I wonder. How did he do? Hebrews 13, I think, gives us a clue, if not an answer. Hebrews 13, 23, I'll read the text. How did Timothy do? I mean, he, he didn't have a huge backbone, and he's commissioned by Paul to do all of these things, and in season and out of season, and, and boy, did, did the guy just huck it at the end? And, and what happened? How did it work out for Timothy? We at least have a good indicator in Hebrews 13.23 where it says, Take notice, that the author of Hebrews says, that our brother Timothy has been released. Well, the consensus is, he was imprisoned. Released from imprisonment. We don't know how it all ended in the very end, but we do know, after this point in time, Timothy was at least faithful enough to not compromise under great pressure to the point where they locked him up for preaching the Bible. Timothy was faithful, which shows the faithfulness of our great God. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for, for this great study that we've been able to engage in. And I confess before you that it certainly uh, served me because it's been a great exhortation and a reminder to me. And yet it's been able to serve other pastors, not just at Omaha Bible Church, but in other places and it's also, I trust, Lord, been able to serve us as a congregation so that we would know that we even have a tendency to want to be told the very things that we ought not be told. Lord, may we be faithful to pray and ask you to give us a hunger and a zeal, a longing for your word, even as the Bible says, like a, like a little baby longing for the pure milk of the word and not ear-tickling so that we would be changed, so that we would be conformed, so that we would not be tossed here and there by every wind of doctrine, so that we would be spiritual, spiritually mature. People who honor Jesus Christ, not only with their doctrine, but with their life. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.